Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and if you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, please go to our website irishhistoryshow.ie. You can also check out previous episodes on the NeraFM podcast page. If you'd like to contact us, we're on Twitter at Irish History Pod. Also, we're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. Now, in this episode of the show, my co-presenter John Dorney interviewed Richard Grayson about his new book, Dublin's Great Wars. So I'm here outside the National Library of Ireland with Richard Grayson, the author of Dublin's Great Wars. Richard, nice to talk to you. And you. Richard, you've written about a book about the experience of Irish soldiers and Irish fighters, not only in the Great War, but also in the Irish Revolution, yeah. which happens at the same time as the Great War. Why did you choose to write about all of those things and not just aspects of them? It was an approach that came from my previous book on soldiers in the First World War from West Belfast, when I discovered a lot of crossovers with men joining the IRA after the war, but also, of course, the events of the First World War being affected by what was going on in Irish politics. And having produced that book on West Belfast, my thoughts turned to... Dublin as a much bigger case study and of course it's harder to avoid uh, the impact of the wider Irish Revolution when telling the story of Dublin's uh, First World War so it just very rapidly became uh, something that I felt you had to tell as a joined story. I was also interested though in, in the idea of how the war had affected people's reactions to the Easter Rising. So I thought if I could quantify service in Dublin in some way, that would help to explain that, because it's, it's been rather anecdotal up to this point. I mean, the, these are uh, a series of very complicated events, and although they interrelate, I mean, they, they are separate in some ways. Yeah, they are separate, and I think that there's a danger of overstating the connections, because, of course... To some extent, people were leading very parallel lives. But I did find enough crossovers, albeit in a small number of cases, where people had been involved in both conflicts, that I felt that it suggested that the history that we might otherwise be told was just a bit more complicated than we, than we generally do get told. So there's always been very kind of controversial debate about why so many Irishmen joined up and particularly why so many Irish nationalists joined up because it's, it's kind of a challenge to the whole nationalist uh, narrative of the period in a way. So where would you come down on, on, on why people joined up or can we even generalise? I think it's important to recognise that the population has many different parts, that there are among nationalists many different nationalists. There are nationalists who might be politically nationalist but they don't think about Irish nationalism every waking moment of the day and just the same I found applied to unionists for example there's a tendency in uh, Belfast to assume well if somebody was in the Ulster division they must have been some kind of diehard but actually people joined for all sorts of complicated reasons now if we think of Dublin um, there's certainly a body of people who joined the 16th Irish division because that's what the leaders of Irish parliamentary nationalism were saying they should do. Uh, but some of those who joined the 16th Irish Division don't necessarily do that because of politics. They might do it because their friends or the people they work with uh, have done so. They might join because they want some kind of adventure. They might join it, and this of course is a very uh, long-standing tradition in Ireland in terms of joining the British Army. They might join because of economic reasons. It, it might actually pay them to do so. And so you can easily get to situations where there are very complicated reasons for one individual joining. And then if you look at the population as, as a whole, the diversity of reasons is absolutely vast. One thing that struck me in your book, Richard, though, was the recruits were indicative of the poverty in Dublin. The state, the physical state of the recruits indicated the poverty in Dublin at, at the time. That's certainly the case. I thought it would be interesting, as I did the research, just because I'd been gathering the data, to look at the body mass index, just to see how uh, healthy or otherwise people were. 
Um, Can you so, explain how you worked that out briefly? Yeah, I, well, I just used the National Health Service Body Mass Index calculator, which is which is online, uh, and you you can find various equations for doing it, but that seems to be pretty reliable. Using the UK National Health Service's measurements, the, the recruits were very much on the low side of, of what we would consider healthy. So almost mal- malnourished, basically. Uh, getting towards that, yeah, mm. on the low side of healthy. So if, if they had been turning up to a doctor, a doctor may well have said, yeah, you could, you could put on a bit of weight without any problems. And of course, that's the people who are actually signing up as well. So there would be other people who were not in a fit condition, who weren't getting through, who, who would be much less healthy. Some other interesting features emerged from that, actually. Uh, we know that the average height of um, the uh, soldier in the British Army as a whole was five foot seven, so people were just generally shorter anyway. But you do find that men in the artillery were shorter and stockier. Uh, the guards are indeed taller than the average infantryman. So patterns, patterns like that emerged. So there was some unexpected social and medical history, if you like, of human history, I suppose, uh, that emerged from the study that I hadn't expected to find. I mean, does that indicate that the majority of recruits were from the unskilled working class, like the poor working class of Dublin? Certainly, you're far more likely to be in the British Army than be an active Republican if you're from that class. There are many middle-class people joining. They joined certain units, though. Not necessarily the uh, 7th Dublins, the Dublin Pals, as we might expect. We think of them as a very middle-class battalion, but they've got a significant proportion of unskilled uh, labourers in their ranks. But the 10th Commercials, for example, are predominantly white-collar workers. Uh, So there's... There's recruitment across the board, but certainly the working class of Dublin is making a very large contribution. Why do you think that was? I think for the reasons that I've that, that I've su- suggested. I, I think partly economic, um, but also if you're living in really dire circumstances, perhaps the appeal of excitement, going somewhere else, being clean, being fed, is is far more appealing than if you're living in a middle-class house uh, where everything's very comfortable. Yeah, I, mean, I was fascinated to learn that some of the recruits actually gained weight during the training, in, indicating that like, even though they were you know, much fitter and doing exercise, which nowadays yeah. would certainly mean they'd lose weight, but they were gaining weight yeah. because they were well no, that, for the first time. That's very common across the British <coughs> Army in the First World War among recruits, and du- Dublin's not an outlier there. I mean, it just showed the, the state of health of the working class at the time. Right? Yeah, yep. people, were, people were poor and <coughs> malnourished. So it's fascinating, but getting on to the, the political motivation, so we, we talked about Irish nationalism, and of course famously John Redmond, the leader of the Irish Nationalist Party, um, encouraged his followers to join and some very high profile examples of the party like senior party officials yep. joined like for example Tom Kettle yes. who was uh, sadly killed in the war yes. um, but Tom Kettle had a very almost a strange vision of what the war meant can you talk about that? So much of uh, what we know about Kettle I think comes from the uh, poem that he wrote to his uh, to his daughter Betty and which talks about fighting for the secret scripture of the poor there's a strong religious tone in that. So fighting for Christianity in some way. There, there is that sense, but also I think maybe a sense of fighting for what is right. Yeah. Uh, it needn't be doctrinally Christian, but some sense of... The Christian uh, thing to do. Uh, the, yeah. the right thing to do. Yeah. And of course, uh, the idea of muscular Christianity was very prominent across the... British Empire and one would expect that even to have influenced Irish nationalists in, in some ways because of the education that they that they would or, or at least could have been through. I think Kettle's a fascinating figure. The fascinating thing about that poem is that although it, it came to us as his testimony if you like his wife didn't want it released initially uh, she was very unhappy when it when it was released and there were apologies in newspapers for having done so they'd really I think just got the wrong end of the stick in 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 reprinting it and making it public so we may have been deprived of that or at least it would have just come out in archives much later on but it did have a huge impact at the time I think he's a he's a big figure he's a significant martyr because Kettle is really um, respected as an intellectual in the Irish parliamentary Mm. party and 
Kettle is a member of the founder member of the Irish Volunteers. Yep, so exactly. he, he's, he's an Irish nationalist tending yep. towards militancy. Exactly. But but Kettle really believes going to the First World War is the right thing to do. Why did he believe that? I think that if you look at uh, parliamentary nationalism generally, they were heavily influenced by a belief that Irish nationalists should stand up for small nations. And when that small nation is Belgium, and there's a Catholic dimension to that, I think that becomes a much easier argument to make. I also think, and this is of course forgotten or just not talked about perhaps with the way things unfolded later on, but I think there is a genuine belief among the leaders of Irish nationalism that what they are signing up to in home rule is not independence it's it's a devolution within within the uk and within the wider british empire and they actually have some sense of responsibility to show that irish nationalists are serious about being allies if you like of britain and that this is this is the moment uh, where that is tested and that 1914 is not a moment where uh, the usual meaning of England, England's danger is Ireland's opportunity uh, should, should be put forward, but a different meaning, which is that England's danger is Ireland's opportunity to show it can be trusted with home rule. Right. It's, it's a quite different conception of it Irish is. nationalism very to, much to, to the so. Republican version. Very much so. Um, I want to talk about one other very famous um, and very prominent Irish parliamentary party figure, which is Willie Redmond, the yep. brother of John Redmond. And Willie, Willie Redmond is also killed in the war yep. uh, in 1917, and his seat is taken by Eamon de Valera, so he's very symbolic of this change in, the, yep. in, in, in Irish nationalism. Willie Redmond, is, is, his death is taken to represent like the reconciliation of nationalists and unionists. What, what, what do you make of that argument? It's a one-sided argument. It, it's an argument that nationalists put forward, and nationalists, I think, genuinely believe that because Willie Redmond has gone into battle... Uh, at Messine alongside the 36th Ulster Division and has been found on the uh, battlefield by Ulster Division stretcher bearers. I think there's a, there's a real belief that this is symbolic of some kind of Irish unity. But that's an Irish unity that nationalists believe in. It's not an Irish unity that unionists believe in. So they can't hope to be persuaded by that. The fact that they found a nationalist officer on the battlefield and helped him, it is an act of common humanity and being on the same side for unionists but they just they just never buy into that argument so there's a lot of talk about this at the time in the parliamentary nationalist press but there's no talk of it among the unionist press so it's a it's a delusion from nationalists that that this somehow offers a vision of a of future irish unity they would think that because that's what they believe but Unionists don't believe in that. Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, maybe it shows a certain degree of the nationalist self-delusion on the question of partition and, and so on. Well, possibly, yeah, yeah. Uh, possibly. Um, you know, that, that, that gets into questions as, as to whether partition was inevitable or not, which I didn't tackle in the yeah. book. Well, I have a question, question for another day. Is it is, I think. Now, we, today, we, you know, we tend to think of Dublin as a nationalist city. You know, yep. um, it's the capital of the of the Irish Republic and so on. But at the time, I mean, Dublin had a very strong unionist population. I mean, I elected a unionist MP in 1918, for yep. example. But one thing which I learned from your book, which was fascinating, was that a group of uh, loyalist Dublin volunteers formed in the in the home rule crisis but also joined the Inniskillen Fusiliers that's right so they um, the Loyal Dublin Volunteers were the you could call them the Dublin equivalent of, of the Ulster Volunteer Force they're not the Dublin UVF they are the Loyal Dublin Volunteers uh, at the outbreak of the war what they want to do uh, I think in line with the view that people sometimes want to serve with like-minded people that it's some expression of some kind of identity they go north to join the Ulster Division uh, and it just so happens that the spaces they probably reached Belfast first but there, there was not so much space in the uh, in the Belfast parts of the uh, Ulster Division so they would have been allocated to one of the more rural units where there was more space and so they find themselves in the 9th Royal Inniskillen Fusiliers and uh, uh, they form a Dublin company so there's a couple of hundred you know 200 to 250 Uh, the records unfortunately for the ordinary soldier were bombed in 1940 by the Luftwaffe uh, and only around a third of them survived so we would never be able to 
completely reconstruct exactly who these men were. But they're talked about in the press as being the Dublin company uh, in the Inniskillen Fusiliers. And that's a really fascinating insight, I think, into uh, a, a relatively forgotten part of Dublin's unionism. We, we know about the middle-class unionists. We know about the Anglo-Irish ascendancy. But we don't have a sense, I think, of perhaps more working-class Dublin loyalism. It's a phenomenon which died a kind of a quiet death, really. Exactly. Post-independence. Yeah. Now, many Dubliners, you, your figure is about 35,000, I think? Well, joined just, just to unpack that a little bit, I found uh, 25,000, roughly, who'd okay. served. Um, but because of this bombing of the records in 1940 by the Luftwaffe, we, we know that two-thirds were lost. So you do a sample and work out who is it I could only find... In the, in the records that were bombed and then just project forward and say, well, if that's a third of them and you come up with a figure of roughly 35,000, in addition, there would be officers and men who served in the Navy and the Air Force who are not so easy to track down. And you then grope towards an official figure that was talked of at the time of around 40,000 who were serving. Which is a lot. I mean, Dublin's population is, you know, around half a million, yep. including the county That's at the right. time. That's right. So it's, it's really substantial yes. figures. And uh, those are county-wide figures, by the way, that I'm giving you. Yeah, and your figure is around six to 7,000 killed in action? Yes, that's right, yeah. Yeah, which, yeah which six again and a half thousand. Which again is a lot. It know? is a lot. When we did the launch of this back in the summer, Rona McGreevy made a point... Uh, that you know, let's think of, for example, the devastating effect of the uh, UVF bombing in the 70s, and then compare those numbers. You know, this is these are very, very significant numbers. Absolutely, and I mean, I, for my, my research has been obviously about the, the events in Ireland, but I mean, my calculation is that there's about a thousand deaths due to political violence in Dublin from 1916 to 23. Okay. So there's six times more, great yeah. more deaths. Yeah, exactly. Least. Now we don't have time to get into all the campaigns, yeah. but I mean. Dubliners fought all over the world during the Great yes. War, fought in many campaigns. Can you just give just a brief flavour of some of the campaigns that yeah. they were involved in? I think the first thing to say that is one of the surprising things when you look at the fatality figures, Dublin's worst day of the war is the 1st of July 1916, the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Now, particularly in Ireland, we think of that as being associated with the Ulster Division, and that's and, and those figures are driven by the fact that there are Dubliners in the Ulster Division, as I've been, been saying. But it's also reflective of the fact that many units are in action around that time. So the Somme is actually incredibly important. Um, after that, however, and I think in the public mind more important, is Gallipoli. Uh, and two moments. First, the initial landings in April, when you have regular soldiers in the Dublin Fusiliers taking part, but then also the landing of the 10th Irish Division in, uh, in August. It's striking that when people in Dublin, after the war, are thinking about IRA operations in the city, they describe one particularly tough area as the Dardanelles, because that's their idea of where slaughter takes place. And had there been a similar area in Belfast, they would have called that the Somme. And that's a reflection, I think, of how important Gallipoli was to Dubliners. Well, it's interesting you say that. Sorry but sorry to cut across yeah. you, Richard. But uh, there, is, there is some streets in Belfast which are named after trench sections during the, the, the 1920-22 violence. Exactly. During the, the troubles of the, in, in the summers of 2021 and 22 in Belfast, people talk about the Somme as being the example. Um, but I think, I think it's even bigger in Dublin, though. I, I think that's the point. It's a, it's a memory that sticks in some ways. Of course, I could add to those stories of the Somme. And, of course, the Somme is not just the 1st of July 1916. It's particularly important. It's a six-month battle. Uh, it goes on till November. November uh, ends on the 18th of November, 1st of July to the 18th of November 1916. Uh, the September phase is very important for the 16th Irish Division, and that's where Tom Kettle's killed. Emmett Dalton is with him when he's when he's killed in the Ninth Royal Dublin Fusiliers. Dalton, of course, is with Collins when he's killed. I just think Dalton's a fascinating bridge then. Two iconic figures of different types of Irish nationalism killed and Dalton's with both of them when, when, when they're killed. To add to the Somme and Gallipoli, though, it's important to recognise Salonika, which is, in, which is uh, where the 10th Division goes after Gallipoli, not immediately after, but, but very soon after. And, can, and the title of a famous song, a famous Dublin folk song. Exactly. Yeah. And you can then throw in, though, anywhere the war was fought. 
So there are Dubliners in Italy, there are Dubliners in the Royal Navy all around the globe, there are Dubliners in, in Africa all across the, the western this is where the second Dublin Fusiliers I think uh, should be a crucial part of the story because for all that we know about the 7th Dublins the Dublin Pals more Dubliners served and were killed in the second Dublin Fusiliers than, than in any other battalion uh, and that's because they're, they're a regular battalion they're already in existence when the war begins so working-class Dubliners who'd already joined the British Army prior to the outbreak of the war, they go right the way through the war, if they, if they survive, uh, right the way through the Western Front. So I'm always very keen when talking about the campaigns that Irishmen fought in the British Army during the war to remember 1914 and 15 on the Western Front because that's often forgotten in favour of the later bigger advances. It's also when the units were most cohesive, so where you could expect the Dublin Fusiliers to be most full of Dubliners, uh, whereas later on in the war they would have English, Scottish and Welsh recruits as well as men from across Ireland. It, it was you, you When you were filling the ranks, uh, you didn't do it on the basis of where people were from primarily you know if if you needed to fill ranks you 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 sent people there from wherever they were available yes i mean that was eventually a grievance wasn't it among irish nationalists that their what they viewed as their units were being broken up and yeah interspersed with but that was also partly because recruitment had slowed very significantly so there were irishmen joining and they might be ending up in the lancashire fusiliers just by the nature of things rather than being targeted anywhere but that was that was just the nature of regiments by well, uh, 1917, arguably, but certainly 1918. Sure. Now, just one more question on, yeah. the, on the wider war before we get on to events in Ireland. Um, I was fascinated to learn that the casualty rate of Dublin soldiers was actually more than the average. So about 19% became casualties as opposed to 12%. Why was that? This is a point you could make about Ireland generally. It's not specific to Dublin. We don't really know is the short answer to that, but the sense, I think, among academics is that Irishmen were more likely to become infantrymen and although there's a 12% fatality rate across the British Army the Army Service Corps which is doing the cooking has not got a 12% fatality rate whereas the infantry has much much higher rates so uh, it's probably driven by that. One thing you say in kind of in the introduction to your book as part of the wider discourse about the war is that it's a misconception to think that most people who went to war became casualties or were fighting all the time. Yes. That, that's not the... No, that's right. So this is... I sometimes in university open days just ask people the question. Uh, these are prospective students and their parents. What proportion of the British Army do you think were killed during the First World War? And you'll commonly get people say, well, most of them, uh, 50%, and some will sometimes say, no, 60 or 70%. And uh, then people say, no, I think it's a bit lower than that. And they'll grope down towards 25%. Occasionally, there's one clever person who says 12%. And that's the answer, the 12% fatality rate. I think this has been fed by the way we've remembered uh, the, the war in actually Western Europe generally. Uh, but if I were to think of things like the power of Oh, What a Lovely War, which was massive the film when it appeared in the late 60s uh, having been on on stage throughout the 60s and also things like Blackadder Goes Forth which will show men living in the trenches for the duration of the war running out of food so that they eat rats uh, and all being killed when they go over the top and this has really fed that that kind of view I've spoken to people you know, in public life I won't be more specific than that, but you know, who really should know better, who will make claims like, oh, there weren't any veterans organisations in the interwar years because none of them came back. Um, as we said, about 30 to 40,000 Dubliners yep. are enlisted in the British Army, yep. but there's also around 2,000 uh, men in Dublin, at least, who are preparing for insurrection. These... These two groups of Irishmen and groups of Dubliners actually come into conflict in, in the Rising of 1916. Mm. Yeah, if you like, Dublin has a civil war before the civil war during the Rising. Uh, and I know that's a, that's a controversial view. There are historians who've made that claim and been criticised for it. But uh, uh, And, of course, there are uh, 
recruits shipped in from Great Britain who have no Irish connection whatsoever and indeed there are stories of them thinking they'd arrived on the Western Front when, 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 they, when they land in Dublin and found it not, not quite as different as they'd expected. So uh, it's not just a civil war, but, it, but it is a, there is that dimension to it. And of course there's the Royal Irish Constabulary as well, who are in many ways initially more on the front line than, than the soldiers are during the rising. I mean, by your figure, which um, Neil Richardson's also cited, uh, yep. there's 41 Irish, uh, Irish men in the British Army killed yep. in, the, in the rising. Yep. And, and there's, you know, there's about 60 odd uh, insurgents killed yep. and another you know, 16 executed. Yep. But, you know, that's uh, not, not two different figures. So. No, no, n- not very different figures at all. And uh... So this is the perils of doing podcasts in public. We've had to relocate from outside uh, back to inside the cafe, so for, forgive the background noise. Um, uh, Richard, we were talking about the rising of 1916. We were talking about the conflict between Irishmen during the rising. Um, as well as combatants, there's also conflict between Irishmen and women uh, uh, as regards the civilian population. And this is very much informed by the experience of the, the wider war. It's really very striking. I mentioned, I think, at the beginning that I was interested in looking at the way in which the First World War had informed reactions to the Easter Rising. I was thinking particularly of stories about uh, women being very hostile to prisoners as they were led away and, and and I wanted to try to quantify that and one of the things I did was just go through all the witness statements and find all the accounts of hostility towards rebels but they were still relatively small and so one of the things I did in the book was uh, use a map, use my spreadsheet with the many thousands of men on it and try to how many men from the areas around the immediate fighting zones of the, ri- of the rising were involved in the British military in some way and I found uh, just over a thousand men from those roads directly touching the sites of the rising served in the British military at some point in the war my estimates, based on where we have enlistment dates and, and where we don't, is that probably nearly 900 of those, just over a 1,000, were already serving at the time of the rising. And 121 had already been killed before the rising. So I think that starts to explain the depth of feeling in Dublin Absolutely. and the hostility that there was. Absolutely. I mean, the area where the prisoners were marched to as well was Richmond Barracks yes. which is A, a military area and B, a very working class area and it's precisely where there'll be loads of relatives That's serving right. soldiers so exactly. I think that informs a lot of the exactly. Yeah, there is a turn against the war in Ireland after yep. the rising um, yep. and it's to do with conscription and so on yep. but, um, yeah, your book isn't really so much about that though so we'll move on to when the soldiers did come back from yes. the war though they, they did come back to, to a different Ireland yep. um, um, again can we generalise about their experience post-war well, I think if I were to generalise on a very basic level, I'd, I'd start by saying that hostility towards veterans was far less than people probably think it was. And that's seen in the extent to which these are sold around Dublin and worn in the 20s, and which thousands of people gather to commemorate uh, Armistice Day and so on. And, and that's not going to happen in a city where it's somehow shameful to have been in the British Army. So what we can say, I think, is that veterans were a confident group. They were quite happy to go out and parade their former service in the British Army. And that continues mm. uh, right into the 30s uh, and indeed uh, to some extent, although the numbers are much smaller then, uh, in in the uh, in the late 40s and in in the 50s and, and even into the 60s, there were still events going on. The veterans who came back, we talked about the diversity of uh, motives for joining up, weren't necessarily pro-British in this conflict that embroiled Ireland after the war. No, that's that's right. Uh, and w- what we really don't know is whether those who commemorated those who took part in these British Legion type of activities were actually really quite pro-British themselves. Um, But there is an Irish Nationalist Veterans Association 
uh, which uh, actually Mary Kettle is, is, is involved with uh, after the war. And, and they're very critical of a lot of aspects of commemoration and they're resolutely nationalist, but they still choose to organise as veterans. They've got some kind of shared experience. And I think they feel that they have some shared interests. The Irish Nationalist Veterans Association is, of course, very helpful when it comes to dealing with the British government over pensions. So there's a, there are very practical reasons for them organising. But they choose, for example, not to take part in Peace Day, which is the commemoration of the victory of, of the war, despite its title, it is about victory, not about peace. Uh, they feel alienated from that. That's interesting. Why is that, do you think? Uh, well, I think that if you're someone who's chosen to join an Irish nationalist veterans group, then you are making Irish nationalism your primary identity. And the songs and the flags and the symbols of things like Peace Day were very British. Mm. They were not Irish nationalist. There was space for Irish symbolism within that, but only in the way that you know the harp is on the royal standard and that sort of thing. It's not something that they feel that is of primary importance to their identity. I mean, it shows the, the complexity of the period, but again, to generalise, what do you think was the Republican attitude towards returning veterans? Well, there's a great debate about this. Uh, in Dublin, it's very hard to identify uh, outright hostility to veterans. There are so many of them for a start. Uh, it would be, it would not be sensible for the IRA to be hostile to veterans. In addition, they would know that there were veterans among their ranks, not in huge numbers, but sometimes in senior positions. So Emmett Dalton again is a very significant figure there. And I think, I think people had an understanding that there were so many reasons for joining the British Army and that the situation was so complicated at the time that to simply look at a British veteran and say well you're a British veteran so you're obviously pro-British you must be a unionist of some kind just made no sense at all. Yeah I mean I think people today reflecting on this need to place themselves in that kind of context that very complicated context and not assume one way or the other you know that that things that, that veterans were pro-British or, or that Republicans were against them as a group. That's right. But on the other hand, I was very interested to learn that the figure of um, British Army veterans in the IRA in Dublin was very small. It was small. It was 16 out of about 3,000 to your figures. I identified 16, uh, and there's been some other research which has been done that suggests that's probably about right. We, And I think there's, you know, a response to that is to say, well, that's only 16 out of... Uh, out of 3,000 3, or, or whatever number you you have. It really is tiny. And they, you know, people could legitimately say to me, because I've had a, I've got a whole chapter in here about crossovers between the British Army and the RA, are you overstating the case? Mm. If I were to say that uh, these 16 were absolutely essential to the IRA's work, I would be overstating if I were to say, oh, actually, they're just the tip of the iceberg and there are many more, I would be overstating. I don't believe there were many more. But why I think they're significant is that I just think they complicate the story. Mm. And I think they show that it was possible for somebody like Emmett Dalton, who was a middle-class Irish parliamentary party supporter, had been involved in the Irish Volunteers, it's possible for him to join the British Army and uh, serve on the Somme with Tom Kettle and uh, win the Military Cross and then become a senior figure in the IRA because times change. And, 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 and talk about Emma Dalton's um, ascent into the IRA because he gets to, towards the top of it. He comes home uh, <coughs> at the end of the war and his, his brother Charlie, who's a well-known IRA figure, is already involved. And... Um, Actually, Emmett Dalton never offers any clear explanation of, of why he became involved. Uh, and Padre Yates has, has written interestingly about this and, and sort of said that, you know, he's the kind of middle-class Catholic nationalist who wanted to do the right thing at the right time in terms of service. And in 1915, that was joining the British Army to go and fight for Belgium. 
1919, that was joining the IRA because the politics of, of, of the country had changed. Uh, and I, I, that's an analysis I, uh, I would share. Um, he gets involved on the training side. He becomes quite a mythical figure for the British because he, he's involved in an attempted uh, breakout at Mountjoy, which goes wrong. But the, he's gone there in his British uniform and talked his way in, loaned the British uniform to somebody else. And um, the British then see him behind everything that happens. Yeah. Whenever there's a later breakout, I think from Kilmainham, where uh, they said, "Well, Edward Daughter's behind it," and he's not. But he then, and he, he then becomes a general uh, in the National Army. He's instrumental in the outbreak of the Civil War because it's him who uh, gets the artillery from the British to fire on the four courts. But he then, he then becomes very alarmed by the execution of prisoners during the Civil War and, and, and resigns. He, he's, he's somebody who I just think symbolises maybe middle opinion mm. at different moments of the Irish Revolution. If, if we think of that as stretching back to 1913, he joins the Irish Volunteers. He's involved in securing guns for them, but then joins the British Army. So he's very much that middle opinion figure and I think so although he's a, he's the only person you can point to who has that kind of journey at least in Dublin. Tom Barry to an extent. Yeah I suppose so. Uh, yes of course uh, but from, from Dublin it's only Dalton but the fact that Dalton is is there just shows that an aspect of the history is more complicated than we might think and I just think that can help us to understand the motivations of the people who didn't leave interviews on RTE in the 1970s and uh, be relatively famous. And I mean, one fascinating story from your book, and it shows again the, the mind-boggling complexity of some people's journeys, is the case of Michael McCabe. Yes. Can you speak about him? So Michael McCabe, uh, his, his father's actually in the Irish Republican Brotherhood, so he's from a Scottish Republican family. He's involved in um, gathering weapons for the rising. He'd been in the Fianna. He had uh, been a very young Irish volunteer, just, um, just 15 actually, during the rising. He's uh, arrested by the British, they discover his age. He's sent, out, he's sent away with a clip round the ear, really, after being in prison for a week. What does he do? Well, we don't actually know what he did in May 1916, but we know that in 1917 he joined the British Army. And he served in the British Army through the remainder of the war, was wounded, I think, in October 1918. He stays in the British Army after the end of the war. He's not desperate to get out. He's not desperate, for example, to come and join in in the War of Independence. There would have been a real twist if he'd ended up as a black and tan, I suppose, but he didn't. However, uh, he, he's in Dublin as the Civil War is about to begin. He bumps into Liam Mellows, who he'd known through the Fianna. And what does this British soldier, who's served for several years, do? No, he doesn't back Collins. He backs backs the anti-treaty IRA. So he's then interned by the Free State. He's let out a little before the general release. He's let out at the end of 1923. Not clear what he did then. But in the late 1930s, when anti-treaty IRA people could now apply for an IRA pension after De Valera had gone into power and made, made changes to the rules, uh, when he applies for his pension in 1938, his um, uh, address is the Gold Coast Regiment of the British Army. So he's rejoined. There's correspondence there in the early 40s when he's serving in... The Gold Coast uh, is modern Ghana, right? Yes, yes yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It's called the... Called the called the Gold Coast Regiment. Um, uh, he's serving in East Africa in the early 40s. He's demobbed, if I recall rightly, in 45 or 46. He doesn't show up again in the records until 1975 when he dies. And his death certificate says, uh, which, is, which is issued here, uh, his death certificate says retired British soldier as his occupation. Uh, and yet he got an IRA pension as well. Now, who knows... My, who knows why Michael McCabe did this but again he's one of the complications and I think he's just he's just shows how ordinary people go through history being buffeted by the waves of history in different directions Absolutely. and I have no doubt that he did what he thought was right at the time in the sense of what he could live with and what he needed to do as well 
right? I mean, it, again, it shows the, the diversity of human experience and how it defies how we attempt to put order on it, really. It does, because I think you could, I think at the very least what he points to, you could, you could make the assumption that anyone who turned out during the rising was really hardcore, really committed, and yet there's somebody like Michael McCabe in their ranks as well. Another interesting story, of course, is Tim Finn, who doesn't see the action that he wants to see during the rising. What does he do? He goes and joins the British Army and gets killed later in the war. And he was desperate to do something. Yeah. And, and that, that makes sense. You know, you can also talk about Ernie O'Malley, for example. Yeah, exactly. You know, earlier, Ernie O'Malley's an interesting case because, you know, he, he's quite open about this. That, uh, prior to the rising, he was, could easily have joined the British Army. And yet he becomes one of the most prominent radical republicans his brother dies in I think it's Dar es Salaam East Africa right? yeah exactly, that's yeah. right so there are those I mean for, and for me sorry to, to interject but yeah. for me for Ernie O'Malley it's very much about his own internal journey I mean he says that in his book that it's about becoming a man as he says you know assuming responsibility exactly so you know people's motivations aren't always political at all yeah no well you mentioned Tom <coughs> Barry Look at what he says in his memoirs. You know, he joined the British Army. He knew nothing of history and, or even the causes of the war. He just wanted to do something exciting. To hold the gun and feel a man. Yes, that's it. That's it. So, in terms of the War of Independence, there, there were, according to your figure, 120 war veterans mm. throughout Ireland killed by, by the IRA. Yeah. Um, but, but you make the point that this is out of a very large number of returning veterans. Yeah, I mean, it's a large number to be killed. I think that a lot of the thinking around this will be, I'm thinking particularly of Paul Taylor's book on uh, returning veterans. Veterans who were killed, they were mixed up in something else. You know, they might be informing, uh, they might have been actively hostile to Republicans in a, in a public sense. And uh, they're not killed because they're British veterans. They're killed for other reasons. Right. So it's a coincidence. I mean, there's there, there will, there's probably a perennial debate about this, about whether categories of people were targeted as informers. But um, and in the Civil War, um, vet, veterans seem to have been very overrepresented in the National Army or Free State Army. Yeah. Why do you think? You get used to soldiering. You become experienced. The National Army also has to be formed very rapidly. So who do you look for? Actually, I keep coming back to Emmett Dalton, but he was involved in this. Who do you look for? You, you, you look for here, people here, who have military experience. And sorry, here, here on Moldworth Street, actually, was where the, the yeah. office was, where yeah. we're sitting right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So it's just uh, a case of if you want to form an army and you need it done quicker than any, anyone's ever formed an army, really, uh, then British soldiers are very attractive. Mm. Uh, you, it, it goes both ways. The government of the Free State would be, or the provisional government initially would be, going out and recruiting them but also it would be an attractive opportunity for them and considerably less dangerous probably than being on the western front oh yeah I mean so, the casualty <laughs> rates are nothing yeah, yeah. Yeah. do you think that war veterans in Ireland were economically disadvantaged compared to veterans in, in Britain itself well there's some evidence to suggest that in a, the Irish Free State they were actually a little better off partly because of pensions rates which seem to have been higher in, in the free state and although one of the reasons for that is that because Irish recruitment tailed off and because you got a pension a bigger pension if you'd served longer uh, in general Irish veterans had served longer on average than English veterans have because some of them had been conscripts in 1917 and 1980 so the average rate of the pension is higher in Ireland unemployment rates are high uh, reflecting some specifically Irish factors and some class factors as well, I think, around who, who the veterans were. There are really very limited schemes to support veterans. Um, thinking of Calesta with housing, for example. Um, but uh, when you look at employment schemes that the Irish government introduces, let's think of Island Bridge, the work goes on an even split between men who served in the British Army and National Army veterans, some of whom wouldn't have had British Army service and would have been Irish, uh, sorry, IRA veterans. Right. 
so there's a different priority. You know, who are the heroes of that period? Mm. Well, by the 20s, the way the state is constructing itself here, clearly the heroes are the heroes of the rising. Right. But the... What comes across in your book is, is a much more complicated idea than you know the, the war veterans were forgotten and that they were shunned and so on. Um, yeah. and, and you cite well, what uh, the Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin called uh, W.T. Cosgrave's chivalrous and thoughtful response to his invitation to the 1926 Armistice Day. Yeah, so Cosgrave is in London anyway for the, the Imperial Conference because Ireland, of course, has become a dominion under the, under the, uh, the Anglo-Irish treaty terms. Um, Cosgrave refuses the invitation on the basis that he's worried about offending people because of his role in the struggle uh, for Irish independence. And it's that that prompts Baldwin and also Leo Amory, who's uh, the the, the relevant cabinet minister at the time, to be complimentary. And he sends O'Higgins instead. Uh, And it's a very sensitive letter that that Cosgrave writes. It's almost touching what he writes. No, absolutely. I mean, he... He, he talks a lot about reconciliation, and he's, but his primary concern is the effect that his presence would have on people who had lost relatives during the First World War in the British Army, mm. who might in some way see Irish Republicans as a type of enemy. Because, of course, the commemoration would include British soldiers killed during the Easter Rising. Uh, and subsequently. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and Kevin O'Higgins, who is deputy in this mm. case, also has a very complicated attitude towards the war. He does. I mean, there's obviously all the family factors there, and I think what is important to remember about these uh, this, this generation of politicians, of Irish politicians, is that one of the things they're doing is trying to construct a new state. And one of the ways you do that is by engagement with foreign powers, by being treated as, as equals by foreign powers. And so, although engaging in British Army, British military commemorations is on the one hand problematic, it's also what a normal state does uh, when invited by a foreign country. So I think it's important to understand that aspect of, of their mindset. And I think that the uh, War Memorial Gardens at Island Bridge and their, their long and varied history shows some of this complexity to us. Can you speak a bit about Island Bridge and the memorial there? Yes, it, it's uh, on the one hand the fact that it's a little out of the city centre is symbolic of the fact that uh, other sites closer to the city centre have been uh, have been rejected. Uh, and it takes a very long time. The money that's raised for it comes partly from uh, what one might think of as the old Anglo-Irish establishment in, uh, in Dublin. Um, but the work does take place, for example, when de Valera is in charge. Uh, his government commits money to it. He, there are lots of files that you can see in the National Archives here of him engaging with representatives of the British Legion, for example. He's, he's taking them and their concerns seriously. I think uh, for all that he obviously has a particular approach to these matters, uh, coming from both the War of Independence and the, and the Civil War, he's conscious of Ireland needing to represent its veterans and include them in some way. And, and interestingly, I, I learned from your book that uh, various Garda commissioners actually recommended uh, banning or <coughs> very restricting uh, ceremonies or parades to the War Memorial Gardens that the de Valera government opposed that. Yes, that's right. I think they, they just felt that, that was a, a step too far. I think it was easier for them to be relaxed about numbers by that time because the numbers were much smaller. We're talking about hundreds rather than thousands by the, by the time this is, this is coming up. And, and uh, the view of some, I think, is that, well, you know, they're a really small group now. We could probably finish this off. That's not the view, to his credit, in my view, that de Valera takes. Now, let's be fair about this and let's be honest. There are people who are host- bitterly hostile to commemorations in Dublin. Now and then, yes. Uh, th- this is not a bed of roses. This is not some kind of uh, story of reconciliation among all ac- across the ages. I think it's really important to recognise that, actually, uh, because part of my argument is that this history is complicated. And only by understanding 
that there's outright hostility. Can we fully recognise that? 100%. And I think it'd be good to finish with just the story of Island Bridge Gardens. So they're finished in 1940, and, and what happens to them then? <laughs> well, uh, we, we could um, leap forward, actually, uh, until the 1990s, uh, when it actually takes Bertie Ahern, who's then, uh, I think, finance minister, uh, to be the first... Rep, formal representative of the Irish government to attend an event there. Ever. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because they're actually closed from the early 70s to the late 80s. They, they fall into some uh, disrepair. People in Dublin often don't know that they were closed because they're out of the way. And why would many people in Dublin go there, especially during that time of the Troubles when they've become intimately associated with the British Army? That memorial does very much become part of the peace process from the Dublin government's engagement with Britain in different ways and we've seen that right up to I think 2011 with the Queen's visit here which was which was very important and she's at, you know she's at two different memorial gardens uh, reflecting the divide and and bridging the divide I think mm. I mean a final question Richard I mean has Ireland come to terms and Dublin but Ireland more generally has Ireland come to terms with its history in the first world war my reflection on the way the centenaries have been commemorated uh, on the island of Ireland, Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic, in comparison with how the centenary of the war has been commemorated in Great Britain, is that the level of engagement here is much, much more sophisticated. I think people have thought about the complexities. I think many people's views have changed. I think if you look at, say, the average English person's view of the First World War, I'm not sure the centenary has shifted that much beyond what was going on in Blackadder Goes Forth. And there have been many things that have happened during the centenary which have just reinforced that, actually. I'm thinking of the sea of poppies that, that was put out at the Tower of London and, and so on. That's, that's just reinforced a certain view of the war. Whereas I think here, just, just look at the amount of material that's been published in newspapers as well as in books that's been bought, the television programmes that have been on. Yeah. Uh, I was involved in one that BBC Northern Ireland made called Ireland's Great War that, that was also shown on RTE. Uh, and just reflecting on the recent three-part series on, on the War of Independence and a little bit on the Civil War. But just the, the, the level of um, complexity in all of those is, is so much more than, than there would be in England, Scotland and Wales. OK, Richard Grayson, author of Dublin's Great Wars. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now that was John Dorney talking to Richard Grayson about his new book, Dublin's Great Wars. Once again, if you'd like to contact us, we're on Twitter at Irish History Pod. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. And if you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes. It really helps us.